Quality Escape Pod is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Chris Latner, CEO and Creative Director at The Room Immersive Adventures in Berlin, Germany. Welcome, Chris. Hello, guys. Thank you for inviting me. For those of you who have never had a chance to visit Berlin, Germany, The Room, which is, from my vantage point, one of the best regarded escape room companies in the world. Some of my favorite games that I've played have been produced by Chris. These games have been consistently very highly rated among the escape room enthusiast community. In the Terpica Awards, uh, The Room has consistently ranked as one of the most popular escape room companies. It's well-deserved. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. This is all part of my goal to make you blush. <laughs> <laughs> you did well. You did very well. European escape room tour when? Maybe next year. Hopefully. Hopefully. And we have some new surprises for you. We changed Beasts of Berlin completely. We just rebuilt the entire game. It's so much better now. It has a huge story, many special effects. Uh, we did this the last three weeks. Seven years ago, it took us seven months to build Beasts of Berlin. Now it just takes us three weeks and it's much better than seven years ago. That's incredible. And you still have to play Brandon Darkmoor, right? Uh, I've not yet played Brandon Darkmoor. It already changed a lot uh, during the last three months. So when you're coming next year, it will be different to the experience other people experience Brandon Darkmoor. We just enhanced some things and made it better, like we do with all our games. Let's start with this. The Room has a rather unusual approach to game renovation in that you do it fairly regularly. Can you explain your philosophy when it comes to maintaining and improving upon your experiences? From day one, we wanted to build experiences we would like and we have a very high level with what we like and what we don't like. Seven years ago, we were not able to build those games properly. But as we have learned some things, now we are able to change a light bulb, plug in a cable. As we learned some things, we got better. And now we are more able to build experiences we really want to experience ourselves. With Walt Disney, uh, he said something like every time he goes into one of his rides, he constantly sees things he could improve. That's what we do as well. If I go into any of our games, I see we can do this better now and that better. And light is not perfect. We can change it, make it better. We have a wider range of abilities now than we had five or six years ago when we built uh, The Lost Treasure. This is why The Lost Treasure changed a lot uh, during the last years as well, from a quite standard escape room with a high-quality um, scenery to a more immersive experience. This is where all our games go into that direction now. The first games we built was Go West and uh, Beasts of Berlin, and they were pretty ordinary escape rooms puzzle-heavy games. As we don't like puzzling ourselves that much, we like more tasks and being immersed into a game. If your game is not a puzzle shop, then puzzles don't make any sense in an immersive experience, <laughs> just if they fit exactly the theme. But then 
we can discuss if this is still a puzzle or if, if is it a task because th those are two different things in my opinion how do you differentiate i just give you an example if in your house the light goes off where do you go first you go to the light switch try the light switch if that doesn't work you go to your fuse box you check your fuses if a fuse is broken you go to a kitchen or wherever you store your fuses get the fuse and put the fuse in and the light is going back on in escape rooms those fuses are not in your kitchen or your storage room they're hidden in a box locked with a number lock which is completely stupid because no one would lock his fuses in a box with a number lock maybe he might forget the code but then he has the puzzle to get the code back this is not real world this is a made-up thing there's a puzzle just for the sake of the puzzle and this is a good example for a task get the light back on just check how you can do it or solve a puzzle to get the light back on those are two different things in my opinion almost like those point and click or adventure games where it's, you have to find this item maybe you have to combine it with another one before you can complete this task that yeah. might be realistic say you can't find this tool in your house maybe you have to make one from these different parts is it something more like that yes i mean every action has to make sense in the world it's in if your game is a very silly kind of game like monkey island then you can do very weird stuff it always has to make sense within the narrative yes yes exactly I fully agree with your distinction between puzzles and tasks. I'll throw a third one in there that I have started to differentiate, and that's challenges, which are I see as more like skill check, something that requires uh, maybe shooting something. It's not quite a task. It's not quite a puzzle, but it requires some level of skill. Like physical dexterity. You're right. This is a challenge which you have to overcome to go to the next step. But even that has to make sense in that world if it's an immersive experience or if the game is called immersive you say you've stopped making escape rooms and you've even gone so far as to change the subtitle of your business name from mm -hmm. live escape games to immersive adventures yeah what else do you feel really is the difference and why do you think that it matters from my point of view uh there are certain types of players one type is those puzzle guys Others like storytelling, narrative, and being immersed into game. And as we don't provide puzzle-heavy games, we had to make that step to rename our business to Immersive Adventures that people who really are into puzzles understand, okay, we don't get puzzles there. We get an immersive experience. I think it's just um, fair for our customers to tell them exactly what they get makes sense to me yeah, it makes a lot of sense everything i do makes sense doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> i've long had the impression that your work is heavily influenced by the movies and sometimes the video games that have inspired a sense of adventure in use this extends even to your website which directly explains which movies you were influenced by in the design so as an example, your latest game, Brandon Darkmoor, is labeled for fans of Ghostbusters and Twilight Zone. How do you go about artistically borrowing from your influences? As most of my team is from the movie industry, it's just natural that we use this medium as our main influence. On the other hand, four years ago, when we started designing Brandon Darkmoor, I started playing video games again. 
And because we want to implement a virtual character into Brendan Darkmoor and I was just checking how they do this in those open world games. I got hooked immediately again playing video games. Luckily, my wife's playing video games as well. So we're sitting on the sofa and playing 12 hours a day Assassin's Creed. (laughs) (laughs) This, of course, is an influence as well because the gaming industry is as good as the movie industry these days. They tell stories and not just of a plumber trying to get the the princess. This is not a story. (laughs) But if you play those open world games, there's a huge narrative. It takes hundreds of hours to explore the whole world and this is what i really like and what we all like in our team so of course those video games are an influence especially those old lucasfilm point and click adventures basically most stuff which influences us is lucasfilm and spielberg stuff a couple of days ago i was thinking about why is that it's because maybe The storyteller of my youth was Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Because I was born in early 70s and I went to the cinema in the 80s. In that period of time, there were all those films from Star Wars to Goonies, uh, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future. And this was my youth and I loved it. I just went to the cinema regularly and I'm watching the films over and over again with my daughter now. Every single film. Because... Those were really well-made stories. Or you rarely find those good story-driven popcorn films in the cinemas these days. You have those rubbish Marvel... This is not a film even. It's just a special effects reel. Two and a half hours long. Hardly any acting. And uh, and this is why I really like the films of the 80s and early 90s. And as we had fun watching them... They are still very, very popular. If you talk about adventure, you always end up at Indiana Jones because that's the prototype of an adventurer. Same with Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is the, is the perfect combination of a film for not young children, but children and adults. It is creepy in a way, but it's also very fun. So it plays all the emotional notes and you go through a journey and this is what we want to achieve that that players go through an emotional journey throughout the game they play i think the films of steven spielberg doing this perfectly almost every film he made yeah he is our main main influence i would love to invite him to play the lost treasure but maybe it never happens (laughs) (laughs) you know one of the things that i think those All those 80s action adventure movies did really well. I feel like more so than nowadays, a lot of them were very ordinary people doing extraordinary things. That's why we go to escape rooms and these immersive adventures. It feels possible that we could also be an ordinary person doing something really extraordinary. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the most escape rooms, you don't do anything extraordinary. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. They advertise like be your action hero in your own movie and then you have to open 20 locks. (laughs) Sorry, but I've never seen a film where the action hero had to open 20 locks. That's rubbish. You are, in my opinion, the harshest critic of escape rooms in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The Gordon Ramsay of escape room business. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't have put that better. On the rare occasion that you have told me that an escape room, and I quote, wasn't crap, Mm -hmm. I know that 
we're talking about something that's really special, probably something in the top, I don't know, 5% of escape rooms out there. Mm -hmm. What do you feel makes for a quality game? I want to have fun playing that game. And I always use an example of a game that was built in Magdeburg. And the budget for that game was 450 euros. And we had so much fun playing that game because it was located in an old basement. It was kind of illegal because there was no exit sign, nothing. This was in the old days? Yeah, yeah. It was six years ago, probably. Yeah, the old days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The things you had to do were not very new. We knew them from geocaching, but it was fun to do them in that environment. They had actors in there like a doll and she was moving. She was also the hint system because they had no electricity, nothing in there. And we had to do something with water. And we were so scared that we were totally soaked because we spilled the water everywhere. And we were laughing our ass off. And that was fun as well. I wouldn't consider this as a high quality escape game, but it was a game which made us having fun and that's very important on the other hand we have those high quality highly designed escape rooms with a very high budget uh, and those are very very good as well or some of them are very very good as well <laughs> especially in the netherlands those people are so creative and i always appreciate if they find creative solutions as someone who's building escape rooms as well We can't enjoy playing escape rooms like an ordinary player because you always think about, oh, how did they do that? How did they build that? What's the tech behind it? And if I'm able to forget all this and being immersed in a story, that is a very, very good escape room for me. If they achieve that, I forget thinking about how they did it. And that just happens very rarely. And the guys in the Netherlands... They are very good in telling stories where you have to be invested in. You have to do something and you feel that it's very necessary. They feel real. You have to win this game because you have to. Yes, yes, exactly. In your traditional rooms, you kind of want to win because of your ego. In these games, you feel like you must win. Right, right, yes, in those traditional rooms, you just want to win to solve the puzzle, to show that you are clever enough to beat the puzzles. In very, very good games, you're just having fun as the person or, or the character you are in. That's a very good game. The ideas that you were just talking about are ideas that we've been talking about for years, but the way that you were phrasing them made me realize the difference between what is motivating me towards a win condition in these different types of games. I had not thought of it that way until I was just hearing you speak on that subject. Is it due to creating a realistic sense of urgency or is it because you are so invested in the story? Both. I think both. <laughs> right. That That's what makes something fun. Yeah. When I was looking at your Facebook, I noticed photos of what I can only describe as extreme geocaches. I see a surprising amount of climbing equipment. Yes. <laughs> As someone who's only dabbled in geocaching, can you help me understand the magic of this kind of serious geocaching? Like with many things, geocaching in the US is so much different than geocaching over here in Europe, or at least it was 
way different. Over here, geocaching was very, very creative. For example, our geocache Dead Man Tell No Tales it took people six hours to fulfill the whole geocache during the night. Can we pause and just explain what it is, uh, what geocaching is, just in case some people don't know? Yes, yes. Geocaching is a kind of treasure hunt outside where GPS coordinates send you to the location where the treasure is hidden. It's basically a container, a little container, could be a film canister or a Tupperware box. And there you find a logbook. There you lock yourself, like I was here, date and time and your name. And you lock the geocache on the geocaching website from Groundspeak. And then you collect those logs. There's no puzzle involved in figuring out the coordinates. You just go to a website, you're given coordinates, and you just go there and that's, and that's how it works? No, no, no. There is. There are several types of geocaches. The ordinary geocache, you get the coordinates, you go there, you find the box, that's it. Then you have the puzzle geocache, where you have to solve a puzzle first to get the coordinates. Then you have the multi-stage cache. You go to stage one, there you might find a puzzle or a task or something you should do to find the coordinates for the next stage and so on. And our Geocache that Mantel No Tales was a multi-stage geocache, a night cache, which could be fulfilled only at night because you had to use UV lights. Yeah, there we had already things built like a beating heart inside a treasure chest because it was about Davy Jones' heart and a singing skull in a coffin, which we buried. We were digging a, a tunnel underground and yeah, people had to crawl in to get this singing skull and all that stuff. And you had to climb a lot up into trees to hoist the flag, to do many sorts of things. And um, even the guys from from Groundspeak, from Seattle, came over to Germany just to do this geocache because they heard about it. I mean, it sounds like a giant outdoor escape room is what it sounds like to me. Yes, as it already was. We even implemented things like a booking system. You had to book your slot because we knew this geocache will be very popular. So people had to book in advance on a calendar. We greeted everyone who came. So we were there at night almost two years every day greeting them just to check if they are drunk. If they are drunk, we sent them home straight away. If there were too many people, we sent them straight away because if you are too many people with flashlights in the woods, you attract attention. People who live there go there and destroy your stuff. But you're greeting them before they start looking or when they find it? When they arrive at the designated parking area. We said, okay, hello, we are the owners. Just want to say thank you that you play our geocache and so on. And we even had a hint system. We were four people uh, setting up this geocache and we had a schedule where each of us had to do the hint system during the night. We gave those people our phone numbers and if they couldn't fulfill a task or solve a puzzle, they could call us and we gave them hints like we do now in our escape rooms, just in the middle of the night. <laughs> Was this a business? No money involved. <laughs> totally for free. Wow. I'm glad you're getting paid now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was my main intention. <laughs> I have a question. You're saying that people have to dig stuff and maybe climb stuff. So do you guys provide this equipment or do these people carry all this stuff with them? Those geocaches have different uh, rankings. You have a terrain ranking from one to five. One is a very easy one, wheelchair accessible. Terrain five, you need special equipment like climbing gear or uh, scuba diving gear and so on. <laughs> scuba diving gear? Oh. Yeah, we did that as well. 
that is amazing i have never done geocaches like that <laughs> it sounds like the amazing race so we are all trained in climbing just ropes and we are divers <laughs> i've been scuba diving since i was a teenager and i had no idea that this was an option it was, it was fun it, it sounds weird now <laughs> It's it, it sounds completely crazy when I talk about that now. <laughs> I love that. That sounds like so much fun. I would totally do that. Do people still do this kind of stuff? Is this still out? Can I still go out and do this? No, unfortunately not. Because geocaching became too popular. And when you have thousand people a day in the woods, you can imagine how the woods look like afterwards. So it's... So basically, it's not allowed to do those kind of geocaches anymore here in Germany. Oh. Uh, same with lost places. Back in the days, there were so many lost places. What's a lost place? Uh, just around Berlin, we have lots of old Russian barracks, and they are like complete cities, abandoned, because after the Cold War... These are like abandoned buildings that people would go explore? But not just buildings. They're huge cities with cinemas, theaters, barracks huge uh, and there were even bunkers you could go in 15 stories deep quite dangerous because there, there was almost no oxygen anymore and uh, that was amazing doing those lost place geocaches that was brilliant it's like urban exploring but it's totally forbidden now you get into trouble doing this now these days in my 20s, I used to go to a lot of raves and parties. Me too. These underground parties took place in some of these abandoned sites, like an old abandoned mall, abandoned hotels, abandoned warehouses, all of that kind of stuff. And it wasn't quite exploring, but we did sneak in and throw these giant parties there. I totally know that because I've been DJing 28 years of my life from an age of 14 until I became 42. We through the first techno parties in our hometown Hanover and um, oh, one of the first ones, not the first one, but most of them were in those kind of abandoned buildings where you crawl through a small window into a basement. Yeah, those kind of parties. They were fun. You had to call this phone number. They gave you a voicemail. You had to drive to this other spot where then someone else would give you another phone number. And it's because they wanted to vet you to, before they gave you directions. We went to a lot of these parties out in the desert where it was like you exit the road, you reset the odometer, you drive 2.5 miles, you're going to turn right, you know, at the cactus, maybe someone put a little glow stick there. And there's this whole series of directions of how to even find this party within the desert. So that was basically almost like geocaching. It's the same. <laughs> Find a party at the end of it. <laughs> On a related subject, Chris, you've had a prolific career as a DJ with a fairly extensive discography. What has DJing taught you about immersing an audience? The same things we do in our experiences, telling a story with your DJ set, send them on a journey. And a journey isn't two hours the same level of energy. That's not a journey that becomes tiring and boring. So a DJ set has to have ups and downs, energy, then go back to rest a bit, have a drink at the bar, then go back on the dance floor again and start again building up until it peaked, finish your DJ set on the peak. The last years of my DJ career, I always experienced that the warm-up DJ is even playing with more energy and much faster than I would even play my peak time set because he doesn't understand how to build 
an atmosphere, how to control a crowd. That's something which got lost maybe 10, 15 years ago in DJing. And this is where it became boring. That makes total sense to me, especially after having talked to you and seeing what you like and dislike in rooms and other experiences. There is definitely an ebb and a flow. You need contrast. Exactly. And I have one more thing. You shouldn't be afraid to implement other styles into your DJ set. These days you have those DJs, oh, this is a minimal DJ. This is a drum and bass DJ. This is a house DJ. This is a trance DJ. And back in the days, in the 90s, we played everything in one DJ set. There was a bit of house music. There was a bit of minimal. There was a bit of drum and bass and trance and hard techno, always in one set. And if you're able to do that, you can send them on a journey. Yeah, got to have a lot of tools in your toolkit. Yeah, this is my influence to understand how to send people on a trip and that it's very, very necessary that they need some breaks in between the peaks. I love that. I'm going to have a link to some of your Spotify playlists in the show notes as well, if anybody wants to take a listen. Do you design music especially for the rooms or like, do you make a special use of music or sound effects in your rooms to really give that immersive experience? I mean, we will do this in future, but we haven't done it yet. Music and sound effects are one of the most important things in our games. Very early on with The Lost Treasure, we went to a mechanism like in a game engine. The sound is mixed live during the game and it's triggered by the actions of the players. If there is a moment where there should be suspense, then the music changes to this kind of suspense music. If there is a moment which should terrify people, then the music becomes more aggressive. And this all happens live and naturally, like in an open world game. If you're riding your horse and you just enter a city, the music changes that you understand, okay, we are in a different environment now. And this is what we do as well. As soon as they enter other places, it could be even in the same room. The music changes because we want to set the mood for that special moment. We do it constantly, live mixing, like in an open world video game. And we use Game Engine software to do that. Wow, that is so amazing. So it's all automated. Yes, yes, it is. That's incredible. Uh, latest game, Brendan Darkmoor, the game master is not what you think a normal game master is. He is running a real theater show for just five people. He has tons of controls. He controls the game entirely. So we went back from a fully automated game like Lost Treasure, which could run 100% automatic, to a game which is almost 70% controlled by the game master so if you move an object the game master has a slider to change some sound effects in the same motion you move that object so you think oh i'm moving the object and the sound changes it's not automatic the game master is doing that we have lots of effects the game master is triggering himself or he's even doing it physically so actually we designed a whole theater show with our software we developed ourselves I haven't seen any software like that. Even the best show control software is not able to do what we are doing. So some things, some scenes are not fully automated. They are triggered by the game master when he thinks now it's the right moment to trigger that special scene. And the scene always means sound, light, scent. Scent? <laughs> yes, we even have scent systems to 
immerse players that they are in an old basement. If your game is set in an old abandoned asylum and it smells like roses, that doesn't work. It should smell like an old abandoned asylum. Do you have the canister of abandoned asylum scent that you like walked in? <laughs> <laughs> We are using it's a very, very tiny company in Germany. It's run by two people and they provide the scents for the Disney theme parks, for the Universal theme parks. We want to have a scent system in there. So we work together with them and they provide us the scents. So we could even say we want a scent which smells like a butchery and they will make a scent like that if they don't have this in their program. I'm so impressed. You know, this is one of those small things that players probably don't even notice that you're doing. No, they do. Oh, they <laughs> yeah, they really do because they refer on it. They go into that room and say, oh my God, it smells like an old basement. Right, right. Players really believe just because of scent. It's totally amazing. They totally believe what they see, even if it's not there. It is a very powerful sense. I guess we don't realize how powerful it can be. I mean, it's used in retail a lot. If you go to a coffee shop, it smells like coffee. My coffee machine doesn't smell like coffee. They have scent system there. And Disney and Universal, they are doing it as well in all of their attractions. Yeah, my understanding is that Disney pumps out the scent of apple pie out onto that Main Street area where they're selling apple pies. It's not actually mm -hmm. apple pie that you're mm -hmm. smelling. And I also, I've heard that their popcorn carts put out popcorn scent. Yes, yes, true, <laughs> true. This is how it works. All smoke and mirrors. This is the way. This is a narrative spoiler alert for the room's game, Go West. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead to around 32.13. I'd like to delve into a, a little bit of a narrative. Actually, it's not a little bit. It's a, it's a narrative spoiler of your earliest game, Go West. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of Go West. I have gotten into many an argument with people. I think it is a much better game than it gets credit for. I think that it is among the finest executions of the classic escape room style that I've played. Mm -hmm. The game was focused on a political message and built entirely around a metaphor. Are you willing to walk through and break down and discuss this? I played this years ago and I still think about it all the time. I mean, we discussed that. A lot before we started designing and building it. We were, uh, were kind of afraid that people think that we make fun of a quite serious historical period that really happened. And the game is about escaping East Berlin. Exactly, exactly. And many people died doing that. We describe Go West as a kind of satire because everything is highly exaggerated. The room where you start looks like an old GDR living room, but very exaggerated. It's much more dirty. It's much more gross than it was back in the days. The GDR was a quite bad system which treated humans in a quite bad way. What's the GDR? For those who don't know, the GDR was a part of Germany uh, governed by the Russians. So there was a border within our German country, even within a city like Berlin. Berlin was divided into two parts. And one part was West Germany and West Berlin. We lived a normal life. We had everything we, uh, we could have. In the GDR, people were not allowed to travel where they wanted to travel. They did not have the latest Levi's jeans. They had no bananas. They had no Coca-Cola, nothing from the Western world. It's a quite sad 
part of German history. But it's long ago now, so I think it's time to make some fun about it. And our main idea designing that game was you have to leave the GDR through a toilet and come out into West Berlin through a fridge filled of Coke and champagne. <laughs> and we built that. And David, go west, changed a lot. You could play it again. I look forward to replaying it at some point. I found playing it really interesting because we have a lot of 1980s games around the United States and 80s rooms in general are always a very exaggerated representation yeah. near as I can tell. Yeah. It was very interesting exploring a very different 1980s and I absolutely loved that you built this entire game around the metaphor and if I remember correctly that metaphor was actually the idea that started the game when you were designing it. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, totally. I love that so much. I really, really do. We will make sure that we include photos of these games in the show notes. So please do check those out. They are worth checking out. Uh, the Room has some of the most elegant photos of their games. They were photographed by Nick Moran. Yeah, that guy has some talent. <laughs> I feel like he has a future in this business. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you updated older rooms because i know a lot of escape room companies will just trash them what made you decide to update it instead of just getting rid of it and doing a new one this is something i don't understand why they trash the games and build something new why do they do that because they build crap <laughs> and realize okay it's shit <laughs> i always compare this with do you know uh, the dungeon the london dungeon it's a kind of horror maze thing the dungeon are sort of walk through haunted attractions with theme park elements. They're in assorted cities around the world, and each one is customized around local history. Yeah, it's a walkthrough attraction and a dungeon on a weekend. They put through more players than we put through in an entire month. So they see the potential. There's no need to change the games because there are so many people who haven't played them. Why should we change them? It's the same with a theme park. If they build a, a huge roller coaster, they don't scrap it after five years because they think, okay, no one is going to ride it again. They only do it when it's very bad. But if it's a good coaster, they update it. They retrack it. They put new theming around it. But they don't scrap a good roller coaster. That, that's stupid. So why should we destroy good rooms? It doesn't make any sense to me. Building new rooms, that would make sense. But... Destroying your old ones? Why? Maybe, maybe if you live in a very small town where you have only 10 or 15,000 people living there and all those 10 or 15,000 people played already your game, then it might be necessary to change it. So when you said you made changes to this one, is it changes to the scenery or is it changes to the puzzles and tasks? Both. Recon, the reality escape convention, our convention for immersive gaming is going to be entirely digital again in 2021. It will be hosted online on August 22nd and 23rd. You can find all of the videos from last year's convention on the Room Escape Artist YouTube channel, and you can find out more about this year's event at realityescapecon.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter to learn more as we start to release the information about all of our speakers and vendors and sponsors. We have so many wonderful things already lined up, and I cannot wait to inform you of all of it. 
what's coming next for you guys? Vikings. Because I was so hooked of Assassin's Creed Valhalla <laughs> and I realized how much death is in those uh, culture. Uh, we will even involve a professor, historian who knows the Viking era to make it as real as possible. Because there were many mistakes in Valhalla, uh, the game and in the Vikings TV show. Um, should be something fantastic. It will be a bit mysterious. We will use heavily the cult around the Vikings with the gods. But it will be an, an immersive experience. It's not an escape. Looking room. forward to playing it. That sounds fantastic. And I don't know that I have actually played any Viking rooms or experiences. Exactly. I've played one. Where did you play it? Montreal. Interesting. One of our past Golden Lock Award winners, the Knight of the Wolf and Serpent. The company were not able to survive the pandemic, but the game was acquired and it's still operating in Montreal. Mm -hmm. I know that, that there's one Viking game in Sweden, Sweden, Denmark, or Norway, some or Finland, one of those Nordic countries. Seems appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> This is, again, one thing I don't understand. Why people don't check their own surroundings first when designing a game? Why they don't find an interesting story in their area and transform it into a game? Especially when you think about marketing towards tourists, people travel to a city, they travel to a country, they want an experience that feels like it's from that place. So give them the option. Let them do something that feels touristy and escape roomy. And you find very interesting things in every city, which could be just a stone. You just make this story out of that stone. Where's that stone from? Oh, there was a druid living in that area 1,500 years back. And he put that stone there. Under that stone is a treasure. Blah, blah, blah. Simple. There's so much history in folklore and mythology that isn't the common stuff that everyone has heard a hundred times. And merging what could have happened and what's there is the best thing. For example, we design a game now for a customer. He has a railway station, which is still operating. Uh, he put a disco inside the station and they have two escape rooms in the basement. And those are the worst escape rooms I've ever seen in my life. But luckily they hired us to build new escape rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and the story will be, as they have a railway station, that there was a train full of art treasures in 1944. The Nazis tried to hide those art treasures and this train was full of treasures The train stranded there because the track was bombed and they couldn't go on. So they had to hide all that stuff. And there is the railway station and the basement. So the soldiers had to hide that stuff in the basement. So it's a bit like Monuments Men, the film Monuments Men, Indiana Jones and Goonies, something combined. And this is the story. So it could have happened. Uh, so you merge real historical facts with a bit imagination and then you have a story. Is that also in Berlin? No, no, no. It's uh, in Bad Salzoflen. Say that, please. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds even Nazi, doesn't it? My goodness. <laughs> I didn't realize that. The game is not about Nazis. This is the backstory. You're an art collector or an historian uh, who tries to retrieve those old art treasures, like paintings and statues and Egyptian stuff. Chris, where can we find you on social media? 
Facebook and uh, recently now on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a huge LinkedIn fan now. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, true. It's, I, I totally ignored LinkedIn. I don't know why, because it's so powerful to meet people from the industry. I mean, not from the escape room industry, but from the theme park industry or themed entertainment industry, where my second company, The Room Labs, is operating. We do themed entertainment in any ways, from a themed restaurant to escape rooms, immersive experiences. On Monday, we start designing an, an experience in a museum where the players have the entire museum for themselves. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And LinkedIn is a very good platform. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing all of your stories and spoiling. You're very welcome. You have such a unique perspective and approach. You just look at things so differently. And it's it's always fun to examine that. So thank you for sharing with us. But it's just my way. Maybe it's not the right way to do it. It sure as hell works for you. Yeah, it does. <laughs> thank you once again, Chris. And please stick around after we do the credit roll. Miles and I started something in our second episode that we're trying to turn into a bit of a thing where he wanted to tell a story about a time he had in an escape room. So we're asking Chris to do the same. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. If you're enjoying this podcast, you should join our Patreon. Some of the perks include a patrons-only Discord and exclusive bonus podcast content. Every podcast will have a companion after show where David and I talk about the interview we just recorded, as well as chat more casually about games we've been playing, industry news, and well, whatever we feel like, really. You can get access to this bonus content for only $5 a month. And a lot of times the after show is even longer than our interviews. $15 gets you access to the Spoilers Club, where we pick a game each month and then we will discuss the game after we've all played it. This month, we'll be playing and discussing Isolation from Escape Room Melbourne. Make sure you've played the game before listening and we can spoil to our heart's content. We've got higher tiers as well, and we want to give a special shout out. Thank you to Wesley James, Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Scott Olson, Breakout Games, and Derek Tam. None of this work would have been possible without the support of all of our incredible patrons and the community at large. Thank you. So if you like what we're doing and you want to support our mission of creating a global community of escape room and immersive gaming enthusiasts, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash room escape artist. It was... Malti, Jochen, Nick Moran, and me. And we had so much fun playing that game. And there is a moment, I was first, and you have a kind of tunnel. And I thought the floor is a kind of mirror because I saw myself in there. And I stepped on it and it was water. <laughs> my whole feet was, my shoe was wet until my, my ankle. We laughed our ass off. And then we had to go in this bath of balls little balls and throw them to the ceiling and we had so much fun and it was so laughable diving deep into these balls until just our heads stuck out of tons of balls we were just laughing the entire game that was so much fun i mean especially if you go out with nick wherever you go you could even just go on a subway it's always fun and we're always laughing constantly because he's such a lovely and funny guy 
Nick, hope to see you soon. I love that guy. He's the best.